0: Whoa!
1: An exciting week coming up liturgically. I do get excited about these things, and I hope you will too. In fact, that's what I try to impart to you on these programs, to be excited about the liturgical life of the church, to see all of life sacramentally through the eyes of the church, the Eucharist, and to live the liturgy. And one of the ways we do that is through the marvelous and magnificent feast days of the church. These, of course, are also called holy days where we enter into an aspect of the reality of salvation history, whether it's an individual person or an event, usually surrounding Jesus Christ, of course, and his mother and the saints. This time, it's his mother. We are approaching the Feast of the Dormition of the Mother of God, or in other words, it's also called, especially in the West, the Assumption of the Virgin Mary into heaven. But prior to that, in the Eastern churches, as always, we have a pre-festive, we have a warm-up period. But this particular warm-up period is, as many of them are on major feasts, penitential. It starts August 1st and involves prayer and fasting and a particular kind of liturgical prayer called the paraklis service. We'll get to that in a moment. But what's interesting about this fast period is that it has in the language of my church, in the original language in the Slavonic, it has a word which actually means the fast of our Lord even though it's in preparation for a feast of the Mother of God. And the reason why it has that name is because it occurs amidst another feast, and that is a feast of our Lord, the transfiguration of our Lord. So it comes right in the middle of this preparation period between August 1st and the Dormition, or the Assumption of the Mother of God. And so the fast was called, traditionally, in my particular church, the Lord's Fast, or the Fast of the Lord even though it was in preparation for the mother of God. Now, I mentioned that during this time of prayer, we have a specific liturgical prayer. And by the way, our liturgical prayers can also be prayed privately, but they're all designed to be prayed liturgically. All of the prayers in the Eastern churches are designed to be prayed liturgically. But some, what you might know as the divine office, can be prayed privately or individually. Well, the Paraklesis service, and that word means the Office of Consolation, and it is dedicated to the Mother of God, and we pray it two weeks prior to the Dormition, in other words, during this fast. And it is a prayer that cries out to the Mother of God for her intercession, especially in times of peril, in times of struggle, and in particular times when we're having challenges with what we might call the passions, in other words, our our sinfulness, our anger, our lust, our jealousies that sort of dark side of us that is so much present in our spiritual battle. So we cry out to her for that. But it also is a cry for her to intercede in terms of the battles that we face more universally, such as this war on terrorism, the war against moral relativism. In other words, the things that are pressing in on the church, pressing in on people of good faith. It's like we're in a vice. The two sides of the vice are the aggressiveness of Islam and especially the extremists and on their side it's the moral relativism. both are very aggressive in their own way and by saying this we're not speaking about individual Muslim people many many of them of course are very very sincere and very 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 fine people. We're talking about the ideology that is known as Islam today and in particular the ideology of the extremist Islam. So that has always been a threat so it's not new. It has always been a threat to Christianity since the 7th century. And and in particular, it was a threat to Christian Europe. Several significant battles were fought to keep Islam from overtaking Christian Europe. These are historical facts. Nothing against any particular person, but it's simply history. And this history is repeating itself in our time. Let's face it, we all are well aware of that. But on the other side of it, equally as dangerous is the moral relativism. And the two things are like a vice that are pressing in on us. So it is appropriate today. And in fact, our theme today is the relevancy of this feast of the Dormition of the Mother of God, as I never tire of saying on this program. Our entrance into the liturgy, the prayer life of the church, the liturgical calendar, is an entrance into the events of today, into our situations today, into our life today. That is why church is so significant, why we have to get to church and encourage your young adult children, many of whom probably are not going to church, or your teenagers or young children, whoever, who seems to be very hesitant about church or just not involved with it at all it is relevant because it immerses us into reality, into finding our way through the reality that we all experience through this darkness, through these battles. And so the feast of the mother of God has a tremendous relevancy for us, especially in our modern time. And so we cry out to her for her help, for intercession. And in fact, there were three major battles that occurred in history where Islam was kept from overtaking Europe, as I mentioned, And all three of those battles were won by the Christian armies in a miraculous way. The Christian armies, as they often were, were outnumbered, outgunned, and yet they prevailed. And the reason they did in all three cases, and these cases were the Battle of Vienna, the Battle of Lepanto, and the Battle of Zenta. They happened in the 16th and 17th centuries. They were significant battles that kept Christian Europe from becoming overrun by Islam. And each one of those battles... The church called for prayer to the mother of God, for intercession, and all three battles were won, not just one, they were won miraculously by the Christian armies. So once again, we have an historical precedent to cry out to the mother of God for our personal struggle spiritually, but also on a more universal level. The Paracas service has words such as this, now to God's mother, let us humble sinners run in haste And in repentance, let us fall down before her feet, crying aloud with fervor from the depths of our souls, Sovereign Lady, help us now, have compassion on us, hasten, for we perish from our many offenses, let not your servants go empty away, we have you as our only hope. Now, our hope is in Christ, of course, Christ is our hope. But what we refer to in this regard is that the mother of God helps us to find that hope, to bolster that hope. She is the intercessor. And so we cried to her. You heard these words. They're very, very passionate words. And we really do admit, we really put it out there for the mother of God. We really do admit like a child coming before the mother, the mother that that child knows well and whom that mother knows well. We come before that mother, our spiritual mother, and we lay ourselves bare. We admit that we're in trouble that we really, really need her help. And we cry out to her in this entire service called the Paraclis service. And again, it's accompanied with fasting and always with increased charity. Those three things always go together. You always hear us talk about that in this program, especially during the great fast, during Lent but there were actually four Lenten-type periods in the liturgical calendar of the Eastern churches, and it was that way actually in the Western calendar as well. Some of it has changed over time, but centuries ago, much of these differences were not so so different between East and West. They were always different, but they weren't quite so different, or they had much more of a overlap or similarity. And over time, East and West developed their own identities, yet we are still bound in many ways We arrive at the same point, but we come to it in different complementary ways. And one of the best examples of that is this very feast of the assumption of the Mother of God into heaven, or in other words, as the East calls it, her dormition, her falling asleep. And that's a very loaded title, actually, which we'll explain as the program continues. But I did want to mention that in these services, they are prayed individually and liturgically, And they are are, a wonderful build-up, a wonderful preparation for the feast itself. This particular feast is a great convergence point between the two lungs of the church, east and west, as St. John Paul II would call it. So now if we look at the feast itself, the feast of the Dormition of the Mother of God, it has, like many feasts in the church, a long history, going all the way back to the 4th century. But in 1950, on November 1st, Pope Pius XII solemnly proclaimed the centuries-long belief that the Immaculate Mother of God, the ever-Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. Now, this proclamation, Mary's assumption to heaven, describes this event in the life of the Mother of God, whose liturgical veneration originated... In the East. And in fact, a lot of the theological basis for this proclamation, this dogma proclaimed by Pope Pius XII, finds its roots in the East. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But once again, the point is how East and West arrive at the same point from different ways and how one actually helps the other. The East, of course, is where everything started, that's the mother place of the Church. And so whenever the Western church wants to make a statement or have some kind of theological development, it always looks back East. It always looks back to mom, <laughs> to the mother, to the womb of our faith and the theology. And that only makes sense. So we have a cooperation between East and West in a very special way in this feast of the Assumption or Dormition of the Mother of God. I'm going to see how that works when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East
0: Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you... You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. It's no secret that Father Loya, and other speakers from the Tabor Life Institute are available to speak at your parish or group on marriage and family topics seen through the lens of St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Other topics include Eastern Christian spirituality and the significance of art in the church. The Tabor Life Institute can arrange for marriage encounters, parish missions, and can help your parish facilitate teen faith formation in either English or Spanish. For Father Loyop and other speakers, contact the Tabor Life Institute by writing to taborlife at earthlink.net. That's Tabor spelled T-A-B-O-R life at earthlink.net.
1: Welcome back to Light of the East, I am Father Thomas Loya, your host, and we are talking about the Feast of the Assumption of the Mother of God into Heaven, as it is referred to in the Western Lung of the Church, and the Dormition of the Falling Asleep of the Mother of God, as it is known in the Eastern Lung of the Church. We talked about a beautiful build-up to this feast, in the liturgical calendar of the East, which involves prayer, fasting, a particular liturgical prayer called the Paraclis Service, and of course, increased charity. But the history, as we mentioned earlier, is long and interesting, goes back all the way to the 4th century. In fact, the Feast of the Mother God, all Feasts of the Mother God, were largely inspired by the statement that came out of the Council of Ephesus. This is the council that proclaimed that Mary is the Theotokos, in other words, the God-bearer. In other words, as always, these councils are are ways in which the church hashed out what were confusions or heresies of their time, usually having to do with the nature of Jesus Christ and of his mother. And so there was a doubt about Jesus Christ being truly God. One of the heresies was a doubt about Jesus Christ because he had two natures, one of them being lesser than the other. His human nature being lesser than his godly nature, and therefore he really did not truly have two natures. He was basically God, a God, a divine nature that subsumed his his human nature. Well, you can understand how this might be a temptation to think this way about Jesus Christ, but it was in error. And so the council got together in the fifth century. And in 431 AD, the Council of Ephesus proclaimed the true teaching of the church, that Jesus Christ is both God and man. These natures do not become confused. They always remain distinct, yet they're part of one person. They compose one person, two distinct natures. I know that's very hard to understand, but we don't always understand these mysteries. We just accept them and live them. That's the important part, that we live them. We immerse ourselves into them. And because Jesus Christ is both God and man, then that necessarily means that the person that the mother of God held in her womb was, in fact, God, as well as man, so she can rightly be called the mother of God. In fact, that's the most appropriate, loftiest title that we can give her. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that God was born from her. In other words, that he had no origin except in her. It simply means that this person with two natures was fully human And fully God, this person with two natures, dwelt in her womb. So she is also the mother of God. But later on, this feast day was celebrated at different times in the Eastern churches. And based on the Council of Ephesus, it was originally just referred to as the feast of the mother of God, her public veneration. But later on then, in about the 6th century, it actually became then set down to be celebrated on August 15th, and the emphasis was not just the mother of God herself, in other words, she just as her person, but also an event in her life, and that was, of course, her death, an assumption into heaven. Now here we have a little difference between East and West. In the Western Church, because of its approach or understanding or articulation of original sin, it says that the mother of God was assumed into heaven body and soul. Now, the implication here is that this all happened at once, that she just went up into heaven, body and soul together. Something like we read about in Elijah and his fiery chariot or Enoch early on in the Bible. In the East, because they have a little bit different approach to original sin, they say that the mother of God, in fact, did die, but of course, not in the same way as we do. Something else happened. Her body And soul were reunited and taken into heaven. Now, again, you see here a difference, a difference in approach. But where do we arrive? We arrive at the same point that the Mother of God is in heaven, body and soul. How exactly that happened, East and West have differed on that for centuries, but it should not be an issue that divides us because we end up at the same place. And here's something else really interesting and very important. As I mentioned earlier, when the West wants to codify something, as the West is very good at doing, such as the Pope Pius XII, who codified this teaching of the Assumption of the Mother of God, it always looks East. And in fact, what happened, and I'm going to read a little paragraph from a wonderful little brochure, put out by the Byzantine Seminary Press, called the Dormition, of the Most Holy Mother of God, Uspinia, Assumption, according to the Byzantine Rite. There's a wonderful series that the Byzantine Seminary Press puts out of all these feast days, but there's a particularly interesting paragraph here. The liturgical hymns extolling the wondrous Dormition of the Blessed Mother, for the most part, were composed during the 8th and 9th centuries by such renowned hymnographers as St. Germanus of Constantinople, St. John Damascene, St. Cosmos of Mauma, and St. Theophanes, Graptos, and others. In their hymns, these inspired writers clearly revealed the traditional belief in Mary's quote, translation from heaven to earth, unquote. Through these liturgical compositions, and again, they're very ancient, they go all the way back to the 8th century, the general belief in the bodily assumption of Mary into heaven remained well-preserved, and provided sufficient historical evidence for the proclamation of the dogma in 1950 by the Pope. The principal arguments from Byzantine tradition and liturgy in support of the dogma were collected by theologian Nicholas Rusnak and were submitted to the Holy See by Bishop Paul Goidich. And on January 25, 1932, the names that I just mentioned all came from my particular church— from the Ruthenian Byzantine Catholic Church. So you see what happened? The Byzantine Catholic Church, I'm proud to say, mine in particular, had some theologians who gathered these liturgical texts that we pray from on this feast day, which go all the way back to the 8th century, and they presented them to Rome as part of how the Pope of Rome came to make this statement of the dogma of the Assumption of the Mother of God. So here we have an incredible example of the two lungs of the church breathing together, East and West, to arrive at a teaching, a proclamation of the Mother of God, and an event in her life. Now, why is this relevant? Well, it's relevant, first of all, because it's a wonderful example of East and West working together, arriving at the same point, but coming from their particular gifts, their riches of their own traditions. But also, this feast day is relevant because it presents to us, and something that we need very badly in our world today, it presents to us, just as the feast of Jesus Christ, this feast of the Assumption of the Mother of God, her Dormition, presents to us the true origin and destiny of the human person. In other words, who are we really as human beings? And the reason why that's important because it determines how we act as human beings and to other human beings. If we understand what a human being really is, then we understand how we're supposed to be. We understand ourselves. We understand the questions of life, and especially we understand how we are to be to one another. This feast, in its glorious dimensions, witnesses to us that the human person is glorious. That was our origin, and we have a glorious destiny. Whatever happened to Jesus Christ and eventually to the mother of God are examples of our true humanness. In other words, they were the new Adam and the new Eve. They were the man and the woman, although, of course, Christ was God as well. But in his human nature, he was the man and the mother of God was the woman that God intended Adam and Eve to be. Meaning in how they were, how they acted, their origin, their destiny. And we see in the new Adam and the new Eve that our origins were such that we were very perfect, we were very pure just like the mother of God. And because we were, we were never destined for death, death as we know it. We don't know exactly how it would have happened. There would have been some kind of passing into the next life, which is why in the Eastern Churches we call this feast day the passing of the mother of God, her falling asleep. See, we, we deemphasize the word death, even though we believe that she did die. But there was something special about that death. And what was special about it is that it points to how Adam and Eve would have passed into the next life had they not sinned. It points to how you and I would have passed into the next life had there not been original sin. But it also points to God's salvific action, where he comes into this world that is now broken by sin, which we no longer are as we originally were meant to be we are, in a sense, disconnected persons. There's a rupture between us, between us and other people, between us and God, between us and nature. All that harmony got ruptured. I mean, it's basically good, but there's a rupture in it. It's not perfect like it once was. So Jesus Christ comes into that historical reality, but he's going to do something about it. He's going to use that history take on our nature, and use that historical time to then take us to our ultimate destiny. In other words, to take us even beyond the perfection of our origins. And this is what we're witnessing in the mother of God, in her assumption, and her dormition. In fact, the circumstances surrounding her death and her passing in the next life are themselves very glorious. Tradition, and very strong tradition, tells us that the apostles were somehow miraculously carried by angels to the place where she was when she was dying, because they were scattered around the world already. They had already gone east, west, north, south, at the mandate of Christ to baptize all nations. But they were brought back miraculously. And then when they knew she was dying, they actually carried her in procession and they buried her. But they wanted to come back to her tomb, and once again, St. Thomas was not there, just like in the upper room. <laughs> he was always the johnny come lightly the doubter but for God's reason. Thomas, this time, is there. And once again, just as with Christ's resurrection, Jesus uses Thomas's tardiness, his, his lateness, to reveal something. After Thomas is there, the apostles go back to her tomb. They find that it is empty. There is only some of her clothing there, and there is a wonderful fragrance of flowers. And they said, for three days, the tradition says, angels were heard singing around her tomb. And this is when the apostles knew that she had been taken up to heaven, body and soul. It's a beautiful scene. You can almost smell the fragrance. You hear the angels singing, the apostles gathered around that that tomb, and her mantle just laying there without her body. Can you imagine that scene? And this is depicted in the beautiful, it's a beautiful, complex, magnificent icon of the Dormition of the Mother of God. But as beautiful as the traditions are that surround the Dormition of the Mother of God, the most important thing for us is that this event is absolutely relevant for us today, personally, and to our whole world. Thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya
0: on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the radio button. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media.